Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is our bioman Azikaway, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, August 6, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Later on in this episode, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the continuing tensions generated in the South and East China Seas over the visit uh, by the United States Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, to Taiwan earlier this week. Russian military forces have continued their special military operations in neighboring Ukraine, despite the claims of Western news agencies of a counteroffensive from Kiev. The Gaza Strip in Palestine is being bombarded once again by Israeli fighter jets, reportedly killing 24 people. And uh, the African state of Sudan has refused to participate in a dialogue in Eritrea over the unrest taking place on its border with the east of the Horn Horn of Africa state. In the second hour, we begin our month-long focus on Black August, which commemorates the struggle of African people against enslavement, colonialism, neocolonialism, imperialism, and institutional racism. We will look back on the groundbreaking historical account of the Haitian Revolution uh, that was written by C.L.R. James and published in 1938. In the final hour, we examine the impact of the U.S. House uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Also, we will analyze the myth of the so-called Chinese debt trap in Africa. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Uh, Stay tuned. We'll take a break uh, with the music from uh, Congo, Brazzaville. Let's listen in. Baila, 
Baila Pumbanela, Leo la capital, baila Pumbanela. Baila Pumbanela, bela, bela, baila, baila Pumbanela. Baila Pumbanela, pongo lo porfile, baila Pumbanela.
Como bolinho 
na Guinea, pena potoe, pena milika, pena kubana, mopiri mobimba. Oye, baligi babina mizika Afrika. Solo penzanga na kopara, 
makina mboka ya kini Nisona ye poli Nibali banso bako zongo gai Na ye bakiteo Soki mwato ya koli ngangai Bongo na bolimo Boli kweza ni kakari poto Para bali mwene Mwati abota makina kini Solo tozua niye Namote mamu akati mwazambe Sara bali mwene Mwati abota makina kini Solo tozua niye Namote mamu akati mwazambe
akoyoka papa wendo akoyemba ndena likembe yena mondanda antoine ya braza wase alembigita akonsekona likembe
Koyarinde nanzara boke na kosega bako pesa Oyo nzambe alo biboye Oyo binonde nzara Eko minda yako finga Uendo na wemba Bosara boye Moko na moko loe Bokepa na wemba Omeriasko Boyepa na wendo Omeri primus Boyepino moko luka yango na mokire yango wanae
ngai batika ngaboy batika ngaboy na koma nanga alangwa demboy mokilie eininga ibrema eininga imamai na komiko banga serge katandai
while China has already received support for more than 160 countries in regard to its legitimate response and safeguarding its sovereignty, and the vast majority of members of the international community are condemning or expressing concern regarding Pelosi's provocative and irresponsible visit that threatens and harms uh, the world's peace. Chinese analysts said this has proved U.S.'s uh, further shrinking global influence following the outbreak of the Russia-Ukraine conflict in February of this year, when the United States marshaled the Western world to sanction the Russian Federation. The United States has united even fewer countries to join its provocation and condemnation against China on the current Taiwan Strait tensions, this time because the One China Principle is an unshakable international consensus, and the world is sick of the United States' double standards on, quote, sovereignty and territorial integrity, unquote, when handling different matters. Earlier today, the United States Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong, and Japanese Foreign Minister Ayashi Yoshimasa met in Phnom Penh on the margins of the ASEAN Foreign Ministers' meeting. The top diplomats of the three countries expressed their concern about, quote, the People's Republic of China, PRC, recent actions that gravely affect international peace and stability, including the use of large-scale military exercises. They condemned the People's Republic of China's launch of ballistic missiles and, quote, urged the People's Republic of China to immediately cease the military exercises, unquote. Analysts said this tone is more provocative than the previous G7 statement, and is also more hostile than the stance held by the European Union and major European countries which just expressed, quote, concerns, unquote. And the three countries' top diplomats have totally turned a blind eye to the Pelosi's visit, which is, is, is the root reason of the current tensions. For instance, German Foreign Ministry spokesman Christopher Berger called for, quote, de-escalation in the region, stressing that disputes should be resolved peacefully and by mutual agreement of all sides, unquote, without any condemnation. And German deputy government spokesman Wolfgang Buchner told a news conference in Berlin that Germany remains committed to, quote, a one-China policy, unquote. Although uh, Germany is a G7 member, it stands, especially when German officials make their own statements, is at least more neutral and nuanced than the G7 statement, which was actually produced under the U.S. influence and pressure according to a Beijing-based expert on international relations who asked for anonymity. Uh, similarly, South Korean Foreign Minister Park Jin yesterday expressed, quote, concern over rising tensions surrounding Taiwan, unquote. While South Korea supports the, quote, one China policy, unquote, Park said it is important to maintain peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait, given its strategic importance of security and economy. Yonhap News agency reported. And you can read this article in its entirety over uh, the Pan-African Newswire. We'll give you uh, more information uh, later on on how you can log on to the Pan-African Newswire. In regard to the Russian special military operations in Ukraine, Russia's aerospace forces destroyed two Ukrainian Su-25 aircraft in the past 24 hours. That's according to Russian defense Ministry spokesman, Lieutenant General Igor Konoyeshkov, uh, he said this in a briefing earlier today. 
He said that the Russian Aerospace Forces destroyed two Su-25 aircraft of the Ukrainian Air Forces in the past 24 hours. One of the planes was destroyed by operational and tactical aircraft in an aerial fight near the Sol Seva settlement in the Cuba Bograd region. Another Su-25 aircraft was downed by air defenses near the Rad Gasnoye settlement in the Kherson region, he specified. Russian air defenses downed eight unmanned aerial vehicles near the Dibonoye and Sulagovia Dolgenkoye, Prizheb, Barak, and Volokov settlements in the Kharkov region and near the Bologi settlement in the Zaporozhye region in the past day, Konoshevkov noted. According to him, 26 rockets fired from multiple rocket launchers were intercepted near the Tokhovka hydroelectric station, the Antonovsky Bridge, the Chernobyl-Yevska, Bilyovska, Novakovia, Alexkovskia, Piski, and the Zyrpensk in the Kherson region, as well as near the Suhaya Kamenka and the Babinkova settlements in the Kharkov region. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. In West Asia, Palestinians uh, have been injured and killed in the aftermath of Israeli airstrikes. And of course, uh, many of them are receiving treatment in hospitals in the Jabila refugee camp in the northern Gaza Strip earlier today. The Israeli regime has carried out several airstrikes against two locations across the Gaza Strip, killed at least nine Palestinians just today, and wounding scores of others. So reports indicate that well over 20 people have been killed in the airstrikes. The first bout of the strikes targeted the vicinity of a mosque at the Jabala refugee camp in the northern part of the Gaza Strip earlier today killing six Palestinians, including four children, and injuring an undisclosed number of others. Footage uh, captured uh, from the immediate aftermath of the offensive showed people recovering bodies of the victims from the rubble created as a result of the strike. The rest of fatalities came during the second round of Israeli attacks, uh, which uh, hit a residential building in the city of Rafah, in uh, southern Gaza, the Palestinian Wafa News Agency reported. Describing the second round, the official Palestinian Wafa News Agency correspondent said Israeli fighter jets attacked a group of civilians with at least two missiles, injuring many of them. Paramedics told Wafa that most of the injuries had been described as critical, noting that some of, the, of them were children. According to the Palestinian Health Ministry, the recent casualties increased the total number of Palestinians killed during the new Israeli aggression on the Gaza Strip, the 24, including six children. The Israeli army claimed that another senior commander of Islamic Jihad identified as Odid Basiak has been, quote, neutralized, unquote, during the regime's latest attacks on the Gaza Strip. And uh, you can read these articles in their entirety over uh, the time after news. And finally, Sudan has declined to take part in an Eritrean-sponsored meeting on Eastern Sudan issues. That's according to Foreign Minister Ali Sadiq. He told this to the Sudan Tribune on yesterday. Sudanese authorities prevented political and tribal leaders from crossing the border into Eritrea 
in response to an invitation by President Aziz Afwerki signing a lack of visas and instructions from Khartoum authorizing the visit. The Secretary General of the Faction of the Popular Front for Liberation and Justice, led by the El Amin Daoud, said that the embassy in Khartoum uh, informed the Sudanese government via the foreign ministry about the visit. The foreign ministry was requested <clears throat> through a note from the Eritrean embassy to select some figures from the government side to participate in the conference, which would be held inside the Eritrean territories, as according to Minister Ali al Sadiq. Uh, he is the acting foreign minister of the military regime in the Republic of Sudan. He told this to the Sudan Tribune news agency. The foreign minister did not respond to this request, which means it's tacit rejection, he further stressed. The Sudanese top diplomat pointed out that the request submitted to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs did not include the list of Eastern Sudan leaders participating in the meeting. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to uh, go uh, to uh, our website to have access to today's program of the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, August 6, 2022, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Falling in love 
landed first in the New World at the island of San Salvador and after praising God inquired urgently for gold. The natives, Red Indians, were peaceable and friendly and directed him to Haiti, a large island, nearly as large as Ireland, rich, they said, in the yellow metal. He sailed to Haiti. One of his ships being wrecked, the Haitian Indians helped him so willingly that very little was lost, and of the articles which they brought on shore, not one was stolen. The Spaniards, the most advanced Europeans of their day, annexed the island, called it Hispaniola, and took the backward natives under their protection. They introduced Christianity, forced labor in mines, murder, rape, bloodhounds, strange diseases, and artificial famine by the destruction of cultivation to starve the rebellious. These and other requirements of the higher civilization reduced the native population from an estimated half a million, perhaps a million, to 60,000 in 15 years. And thus it is that Dr. C.L.R. James, a distinguished scholar, reads the first two paragraphs of his prologue, a remarkable book, a classic, The Black Jacobins, which deals with the Toussaint Louverture-led Black Slave Rebellion in San Domingo two years after the French Revolution. In these two paragraphs, Dr. James, your style of writing, of course, is a very salubrious one indeed, but the bite, the irony, and the truth, you might say, 
of white man in all these years, of Western civilization, so-called. In these two paragraphs, you've almost essentialized it. Yes, I think so, and I wrote it quite naturally. I didn't have to search, but I am a West Indian, and we in the West Indies are very much aware of the contrast between what the white man says and what he does, because we are Western civilized in our orientation, so we are aware of all the things he's saying, much more than people who speak a different language or live a different type of civilization. This very point you make, which you point out, Professor James is now visiting professor at the Northwestern University. Uh, the fact that you're West Indian, this has always been a fascinating historical point, isn't it? it we is. think among the leaders and the whole black liberation movement through the years have been West Indians. Yes, we have had a whole lot of them. We have had Marcus Garvey. We have had Aimé Césaire, the poet, with that magnificent poem on Africa in which he stated the question of negritude. We have had uh, René Marin, who won the Prix Goncourt with a book, Batuala, on Africa. We have had uh, Padmore. George Padmore, Marcus Garvey, as I said. And we have had, there's no doubt about it, that Malcolm X's mother was a West Indian, and that had something to do with it, and Stokely Carmichael was born and grew up there as a boy. I also took some part. I believe it is something that is worthwhile, and I know and feel myself as a West Indian as Padmore was. It's as though two, two cultures are fused, in a sense. Yes, we are not admitted completely into the Western culture, but we have all the possibilities of developing it. So on being uh, kept back at home, we went abroad and made the best use of both the opportunities of education and the impulse towards freedom, which we felt in the island. That is the reason why the West Indians have done so well. And I would like to add this, that Fidel Castro and the Cubans are not of all black people, Fidel isn't black at all, but the attitude of the revolution and what they are doing is essentially a West Indian revolution, similar to what Toussaint Louverture did. Yes, so we come, in fact, you have a, an appendix to your book, uh, an epilogue. You wrote the book in 1938, how remarkably prescient and prophetic uh, Professor James' book is, because he dealt with the nature of Africa and the possible independence movements back then, but the, the epilogue is from... Toussaint Louverture to Castro. Now, Toussaint Louverture, and it's, it's imperative, of course, that white people know this. Uh, more blacks do, or we know that younger blacks are aware of this. I had difficulty finding this book, by the way, in white bookstores. I found it at the Ellis Bookshop on South Cottage, which is significant in itself, I think. I think the book now is being sold and read everywhere. Yes. I think the movement on the whole... It is being read and studied in universities predominantly white in the United States. Yes. That is a fact. Although it's the black movement that has given it the great impetus. Perhaps we should dwell upon the nature of this book, and it's a terribly important one. It's the, sub the Black Jacobins, the subtitle, Toussaint Louverture and the San Domingo Revolution. Now, here you, you describe a scene. Uh, the uh, Spaniards came, the French, the British. They found a great deal of profit to be made in the West Indies, San Domingo, Haiti. And it now, was the wealthiest colony in the world at the time, not only in the West Indies. And so, but it could only be done. You describe, of course, the slave trade and the nature of the slave ships and the yes. incredible brutishness. So the question is, how could a people, the black people in this case, the Africans, and this, well, I'll ask you about the mulattoes in a moment, the Creoles, how could they survive is the question. This is the key. The question is this. Number one, they were a people, obviously, 
who had basically a very fine physique. Otherwise, they would have been wiped away by the sheer objective circumstances of the Middle Passage and their lives. They have a fine physique, and secondly, which is a most important point, they obviously were a highly civilized people. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to be integrated into the, sla into the sugar production in the way that they were and learn as rapidly as they did the language and all the uh, techniques of Western civilization. They were a civilized people in Africa, and today people are more and more recognizing that even when they were slaves in Africa, they were slaves of a certain organized society. That is what must be remembered about the West Indian. And he was more fortunate than he was in the United States because the islands were small, immensely concentrated. The sugar plantation had many of them living together, so they were closely connected. And this backbone of civilization in Africa and African physical strength, and then having to learn the elements of Western civilization, made them what they did and what they have become. Ah, so we come to several points that Dr. James raises. And again, the question of submerged history or suppressed history, that there was a highly developed, I know Basil Davidson, among others, points Basil this out. Davidson is doing a lot of that work, and that work is very important, and I'm very glad that Basil Davidson is doing it, because I have to say there is a tendency to criti criticism, sharp criticism of people who are white, because they are white. And Basil Davidson is a white man who would be an adornment to any black university. But in his books, whether it be The Lost Cities of Africa, others, he speaks, and indeed many anthropologists now are discovering, there was a highly developed civilization before the slave ships came. Yes, not only that, the man who I know has carried that to the highest point is Professor George Roig. He used to be at Rochester, and he's now professor of sociology at Washington University in St. Louis. And he's doing some work on that subject, which is the very finest and most developed that I know. I myself am writing something, and most of my work is based not only on previous knowledge, but on what he and I have worked out together. Before I ask you further about the book, we go into the book, we should point out to the audience that Professor James is a historic figure. I hope you don't mind my saying this. Not a museum. Professor James was an acquaintance of Nkrumah. Uh, he had met him when you discovered him, when he was going to the University of Pennsylvania. He was a friend of Dr. Du Bois. He uh, was a friend of George Padmore, a remarkable figure, too little known well, to... A close ally of George Padmore. I used to know Marcus Garvey, too. You, you, oh, no, you knew, knew Marcus, Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey came to Trinidad sometime about 1928. He had already been sent away from the United States. And I was a reporter. And I went and interviewed him and followed him around where he spoke. He was a tremendous man. You probably are one of the few living people... I would guess, who knew Marcus Garvey personally. Yes, I knew Marcus Garvey. Now, I interviewed him somewhere about 1928. Perhaps this is worth dwelling on. The role of Marcus Garvey. Here's a man who's been ridiculed to a great extent, and yet he made people aware, did he not? This Western... I believe the intellectual origin of the black movement must rest with Dr. Du Bois a man with a range of scholarship, practical activity, and ambition for the development of humanity, which is not exceeded by anybody in the 20th century. But his chief concern was to appeal to and get in contact with intellectuals, historians, organizers, etc. When Du Bois was finished, Garvey began, so to speak, and Garvey made black emancipation something popular, which it had never been before. So both of them, although they may have had conflict, they filled yeah. political roles. Du Bois made it, and 
an intellectual uh, discussion, posed the question. Gavi made it a popular question. When Gavi was finished, everybody knew there was a black question. Both white people knew and black people all over the world knew. And that is what Gavi did, despite the mistakes that he made. That is to his great credit. And Garvey's name was known throughout the black world. In Africa, too, they knew of Marcus Garvey. And also throughout the white world. Gavi had made everybody, black and white, understand that the black man was sleeping no longer. He was on his way. That here, is his great contribution. Here again, a West Indian. And so we return to this moment that, with, with which your book begins. Uh, here was a colony profitable to the colonist, to the absentee landlords, the powers, uh, people being used, abused, yet surviving. Now, something happened in France. Now, in 1789 was a French Revolution. Mm. Therefore, it had a certain impact. How did word come to San Domingo? For one reason... People used to go up and down, but the French whites discussed the doctrines of the French Revolution with the utmost freedom. And there were white people from France who asked them, aren't you worried a bit that you should discuss these things before these black people? But they paid no attention to the blacks. They looked upon them as some sort of animal. A white woman used to undress before the black slaves, as if they were a horse or a dog. They looked upon them as nothing, and they discussed these things very freely. And people from France asked them, but aren't you nervous talking? They didn't bother, but the blacks were listening. Ah, what is interesting about this, what makes Professor James' book so contemporary is this very point you just made. Often there is a woman working as a domestic in the home of a white mistress, you know, and she's talked about many, tell me this, friends of mine who worked as domestics, elderly women, who say that uh, they know everything about this person, and the person knows nothing about her because that, they talk in front of her as though she were furnished. That is a fact. That is a fact. That is a fact. You see, and a great deal of that is due to the fact that the black man is looked upon as a barbarous African literate, but he has had to learn the language. That is very important. He has had to learn the European language. So today in the Caribbean, he speaks English, French, or Spanish. And he's equally a master of all of those, those so languages. he's learned these languages. He's learned far more, indeed, than the white master knew to survive. And so we come to many other aspects in your book, the nature of survival itself. Sometimes it's clowning. Sometimes it's pretending not to know in order to survive. And behavior different, uh, black people among blacks, different than, say, in front of the white. That is quite true, but the thing that I emphasize in regard to the Caribbean islands and regard to the San Domingo Revolution and the Cuba Revolution is this. The islands are rather small, judging on a world scale. The population is immensely concentrated. The type of industry where there is some is sugar or scraps of modern industry which d develop a highly civilized population. And in, for example... Trinidad, the island I come from, Barbados and Jamaica, we have the extraordinary advantage of having newspapers, tele papers, television, radio, etc., from Britain, from the United States, and from Canada. The opportunity of being in touch with the advanced centers of civilization is very so good. So then the people will au courant with all aspects the of life. people are aware. They just have to pay two or three dollars a month and they get a radio, and they hear everything that's going on. Now, going back to this time, something was happening then at this moment in France, a revolution. Two years later, something broke out in San Domingo, 
And we soon we learned of a man named Toussaint Louverture. But before that, now, was there an attempt by the colonists to split the people? After all, there were mulattoes, there were Creoles, and there were the blacks. Yes, the San Domingo Revolution began, the Black Revolution, because of the fierce struggle that was carried on between the San Domingo whites and the mulattoes who owned property, and some of them were educated. And after seeing the ferocity of that violence, the blacks themselves entered. They entered as a result of the conflict between San Domingo whites and San Domingo mulattoes in the same way as the masses of France intervened because of the conflict between the nobles, the aristocracy, and the bourgeoisie. This went on, and then the masses came in. The same thing happened in San Domingo. So a parallel was working both parallel ways. Was remarkable as a matter of fact, I'm very much struck by the tremendous parallels between the development in San Domingo and the developments in France. Much of my book pays careful attention to that, and I believe there are more parallels to be found later as we study both the French Revolution and the San Domingo Revolution. So there was a question of paradox involved, a question of contradiction involved. You point out the French Revolution was, in a sense, bourgeois, uh, taking over, knocking off the... At the same time, slave trade was part of their... Yes, the, the money that the bourgeoisie got that made them what they were, and as Jaurès says, gave them the feeling for liberty, that came from the slave trade. It's a very sharp contradiction. Now, the second paradox that I'm concerned with is that this sugar plantation was a very severe and demanding mode of labor, but it also concentrated the, the blacks and gave them some element of social civilization, some feeling of unity, and enabled them to learn fundamentally many aspects of Western civilization. So, so that this sugar plantation was at the same time the most degrading and at the same time a very civilizing effort on the part of the black people. Again, paradox. The degrading nature of the work, the exploitation, at the same time, communication, communication. because of the constant contact. A con- constant contact, and also the sugar plantation produced sugar and the food that they ate came from abroad, the sugar was sent abroad, and so forth, so that they had education, not only in what was going on around them and the close relation with their masters, but the sugar plantation was intimately connected with foreign developments and finance and so forth, and all that the slaves learned. So the window now was being opened. The window, awareness was occurring, and once that happens, people can no longer be the same. And the moment the French Revolution began, because what is important about the San Domingo Revolution, which has made it the most successful, the only successful slave revolt in history, is the fact that they were slaves. They had these elements of civilization in them, but they were able to use the doctrines and ideas of the French Revolution and apply them, these ideas, to their own situation. So they had not only a physical basis, contact with society, but they had a new ideology. That's what they were, liberty, equality, fraternity, all that meant to them, the republic, and so on. So again, perhaps the crowning paradox is the fact that it was the bourgeoisie that were factors in the French Revolution, and also profiting the slave trade, but because of what they did, the window was now opened to the black slaves as well as the colored slaves. And they learned in, it. In they learned. They, oh, they took it over and made it something for themselves. And so the time was right then for a certain figure or group of figures. Yes, so uh, we on the basis of that objective development and the spread of ideas, there emerges this remarkable man. It's difficult to say 
that the revolution made him, but he made the revolution, but the interplay between them is such that it's difficult to distinguish. And here we come to a man who's been a slave for 45 years, yes. Toussaint Louverture. Yes. And he comes at this moment, about 1791 or so. Yes. However, more important is the fact that the Abbe Reynal had written a famous book on the situation in the East and the West Indies. And he had said in that book, in a magnificent gesture, that the time was coming when some revolutionary person would relieve the slaves of the burdens from which they were suffering. And what is most fantastic, that book came into the hands of Toussaint Louverture. And he read repeatedly this passage in which the Abbe Reynal, I'm sure he was just a revolutionary intellectual, he just said, someday somebody would arise. And Toussaint kept on saying, someday somebody should arise. And he kept on thinking that someday somebody should arise. And the moment the revolt started in San Domingo, he said, this is, I am the person now. That is a very strange business. Reading of the words. Now, something was happening in France. You mentioned that Diderot, there were writings against slavery. That is before the revolution, yeah. the encyclopedia, yes. They're writing, but very often, I think you point this out in the case of Robespierre, that it was the word rather than the deed that was yes, being attacked. Because to abolish slavery meant a revolution. A tremendous revolution, not only in San Domingo, but in France. And they had reached 1793, and the days of May, 1793, and they had reached this spring of 94 before they abolished slavery. So now the word had come. The man had come, and his colleagues, now the word. Worthy, and for 12 years now, the battle raised, the revolution with pressures back and forth. Were the colonists wholly, now we come to the question of awareness or lack of awareness, were the absentee landlords of the colonists themselves? Now the colonists began by joining the revolution because the ancient monarchy had what is called the exclusive, and by that means they dominated the economy. So the colonists began by joining the revolution. But afterwards they saw that the revolution in France was assisting the black people and saying at any rate if you are fighting for freedom you should have it, etc. Whereupon the colonists to a large majority offered the colony to the British. That they offered it to the British. They were ready to, they were ready to get rid of king and all this loyalty. They told them if slavery was not mattered to them. And so they offered it to the British and the British came to get it. But they were defeated by Toussaint Louverture and the Black Army. So we have here again, we come back to your very opening two paragraphs you read in the prologue, the question of the coin, the, yes, question, the question of gold, of the, property, the question the wealth, of property, the production, the control of it. So I think what's bone deeply uh, powerful about uh, Dr. James' book, The Black Jacobins, is it deals with the reality of today, too. Though you deal with a time hundred and almost 200 years ago, and you didn't say that... There are, there's lip service very often offered, but until the reality face that may concern property itself, then a shift occurs in the case of the colonists. I was able to write this book because I was taking part in London and thereabouts with George Padmore, Jomo Kenyatta, and various others. I had been friendly. I got to know him, and we were living this life. In other words, the French Revolution, the revolution of San Domingo, was to us a forecast of what would take place in Africa. So this book is closely the result 
of the kind of activity we were carrying on, both with the Marxist movement, with the black movement, and with the Labour Party and various others in Europe. The book is the result of a collab collaboration of a lot of people. So it really is a fusion of past and present. It's a so you wrote about the past, writing about present and future. And if you read the book carefully as you will, you will see that all through I am concerned with the effect of what I am writing on Africa. Yes. yes. You even have, if we come to another aspect, and this connects with the revolution itself, Toussaint Louverture, voodooism, the very fact that this had to be done secret too, because how could black people be Christians or to make themselves equal to the white, the colonists? They stuck to their voodooism because it formed a secret means of communication. But when the revolution actually took place, Toussaint and his officers were very severe against voodooism. They thought it was a backward being. But undoubtedly, I have no doubt as time goes on, that voodooism, not only before 1791, but afterwards, was a secret means of communication between yes, the Haitians. Slaves in America, the spiritual had a double meaning. Yes. So the gatherings. They were very close to Africa, you see, because many of the slaves who made the revolution had made the Middle Passage. So they had their voodooism. Well, they now, had. a question, because your book raises these questions, which makes it so fascinating work, too. The role of the French working people, masses now, at the time, the French Revolution and after, what effect this was having on the revolt elsewhere? We naturally think of today, America and uh, Vietnam, in a sense. No, I think this much. First of all, the French Revolution was the bourgeois revolution in that it resulted in the displacement of the feudal elements by the bourgeoisie, and the bourgeoisie took over. But the fact remains that the bourgeoisie will not have been able to carry that revolution to its success unless the masses of the French people, the sans-culottes, had done it for them. The sans-culottes didn't win money, but they were so hostile to the regime that they carried the bourgeois revolution to its complete end. And also in San Domingo, the revolt there meant that the black soldiers were able to defend that wealthy colony against the British, Spaniards, and the rest of them so that they help one another. And in, at the high peak of the revolution in France, that was the time when the French revolutionary forces declared freedom for blacks everywhere. So the two of them were working together. Now, were there attempts, I think you point this out in the books too, there was a great ambivalence on the part of mulattoes to many, many cases. Yes, the mulattoes were an intermediate class. This has nothing to do with their color or their blood or the mixture of blood. It is that they were not closely allied with the rich whites, but they were rich people, and they were allied in a way with the blacks, they were partially racial blacks. So in between there, they were a typical intermediate class, and wobbled both sides. Now they would go with this one and the other. And the ultimate victory in San Domingo was won, when the mulattoes joined completely with the blacks to finish up with yes. the French invasion. Now we come to several people in, in Toussaint's life. You mentioned Abbe Renal. And a remarkable name, man named Santonax. Santonax was a Jacobin. He was a right-wing Jacobin. But there was something about him. He came out to, to San Domingo being sent by the government more than once. And although he made mistakes and things and so forth, he was a man completely devoted to the emancipation of the black people. And he taught them literacy. He taught them revolutionary songs. He taught them Latin and Greek stories and education, the doctrines of the revolution. And he told them, you have your guns. 
keep them. If at any time anybody tells you to give up your guns, they mean to restore slavery. Santonax was a bit uncertain as to what was taking place in France, but in regard to San Domingo, to, um, 50 years after, black slaves still remembered him because he had devoted himself completely to black emancipation. But there was always this memory and this knowledge that there would be an attempt to restore slavery. He had that, and he warned them. Anybody tells you to give up your guns, that means the restoration of slavery. And so we come to uh, many documents you have, uh, writings of Tucson and others. Perhaps, uh, I remember you reading the first part, the prologue. I've underlined something here of your writings, Tucson's writings. Uh, the underlining, the question is... Uh, are the colonists aware now that the black people will never, will never return to that? Toussaint place? is writing to the French government, and he's warning them that the colonists are plotting to restore slavery. And he's telling the French government, I'm somewhat uncertain as to what you intend to do. So he's telling them, well, I don't think you will. It is a very fine passage. Do they think that men who have been able to enjoy the blessing of liberty will calmly see it snatched away? They supported their chains, only so long as they did not know any condition of life more happy than that of slavery. But today, when they have left it, if they had a thousand lives, they would sacrifice them all rather than then be forced into slavery again. And then he speaks here to the French government, but no, the same hand which has broken our chains will not enslave us anew. France will not revoke her principles. She will not withdraw from us the greatest of her benefits. He's telling the French government, you wouldn't do it, but I'm telling you not to do it. She will protect us against all our enemies. She will not permit her sublime morality to be perverted. Those principles which do her most honor to be destroyed, her most beautiful achievement to be degraded. But if to reestablish slavery in San Domingo, this was done, then I declare to you it would be to attempt the impossible. We have known how to face dangers to obtain our liberty. We shall know how to brave death to maintain it. And then he ends up magnificently. This, citizens, directors, is the morale of the people of San Domingo. These are the principles that they transmit to you by me. Orphe was beautiful. The eloquence. Oh, yes. And yet wasn't this the one flaw in Toussaint, his faith in France? Coming to Toussaint Louverture's, possibly his one flaw, Dr. C.L.R. James, Professor James, our guest, a scholar, particularly on black African West Indian history, a reading talking about his book, it's a classic, called The Black Jacobins, dealing with Toussaint Louverture Revolt, beginning in 1791 in San Domingo. And he was just reading one of the letters Toussaint wrote to France. In a moment, we return to the theme and to Professor James. We return to Professor James, his book, The Black Jacobins. He's just been reading a letter that Toussaint Louverture wrote to the French government. And we continue. A flaw. I admit that it was a flaw, but to see it only as a flaw is a mistake because that enabled him to lay the foundation in San Domingo that Dessalines and these others were able to use. That he, he had a limit, but it was this limitation that enabled him to establish something which the others could do. I, I, I withdraw that word flaw because this again is part of the power of your book, the nature of paradox, the nature of limitation, the nature of human possibility. I would like, this was Tucson. I would like to tell you something. For a hundred years and more, Toussaint was somewhat uh, ignored in the history of San Domingo. 
people looked upon Toussaint as having made mistakes, and Dessalines, the man who carried the revolution to success, which undoubtedly he did. My book was translated into French. It went to Haiti. And I've been told by many Haitians that today in Haiti, there is a new conception of the role of Toussaint in the revolution due to the, the, what my book has said. So because even though, as you say, uh, he was tied France very much. Yes. This the nature of him. This enabled one of his colleagues, Dessalines, to go to, further. To go further, and, and, and enabled Toussaint to lay the foundation and to establish certain principles. The real mischief maker in that business was Bonaparte. Ah, so now we come to Bonaparte misusing. Miss and Miss Bonaparte, who sent this tremendous expedition, perhaps the greatest expedition that had ever left Europe to conquer the Haitians, the, the blacks in San Domingo, and they failed. You know, it's incredible. Again, the book and its 1969-70 counterparts. The greatest expedition to conquer an island, we think naturally of ourselves in Vietnam at the moment, but here it was Leclerc led this incredible... Something happened to him, this French general, in his letters, his agony, yes. something he thought was easy, was a cinch, yes, no. and then something happened to him. To and him. in the end, he says, we in France have a false idea of the country in which we fight and the kind of men we fight against. That was Ronald to him at the end. He realized that the blacks of San Domingo were not people whom you could just drive into slavery. He says, we don't understand these people. I remember many passages of his letters, but I remember this passage in particular. It is not enough to have taken away Toussaint. There are 2,000 leaders in San Domingo to be taken away. And right there, even though Toussaint was betrayed, he returned to France, he was imprisoned and died in prison. He said so, yeah, that, uh, it, there were still others. Yes, he said, you have, in getting rid of me, you have taken away only the trunk of the tree, but its roots are deep, and slavery will never be restored in San Domingo. That must be remembered. Toussaint could take the chances that he did and tie himself to French civilization because he was absolutely certain that the slavery could never be restored. And so it was 12 years or so. Yes. The French had, lost thousands, of course, lost the blacks. They lost 60,000 men, and more than that, the historian of the British Army says that the British Army was destroyed in the Caribbean. Totally destroyed. He says that is why when the war began in 93, they made little attempt or could do little in regard to France, in regard to the army, in, re in regard to military invasion of France. The reason was because they were attempting to capture the West Indian territories of France and the black armies destroyed the British army completely. Fortescue, the historian of the British army, says that 1798 is the most disgraceful year in the history of the British army. Because those blacks in the San Domingo did what they did. You know, your book has ever, a never-ending possibilities because it occurs to me, the black Jacobins, and of course the phrase used with the French Revolutionary Party, the Jacobin Party, but also the role that the Toussaint Louverture Revolution played in the American Civil War. Now, not only that, I would prefer to say this. It is in regard to the independence of the Latin American countries because they saw America independent. Good, they accepted that. But then they saw these black slaves not only win the independence, but keep it. Whereupon a lot of them in Latin America began to say, well, if they could win the independence and keep it, 
it isn't only America and a big country like so we can. And Petion was beaten from Latin America, was welcomed in Haiti, he was given food, he was made better, doctors attended him, and then they gave him men. This was a Latin American. Latin America, they gave him men, they gave him uh, arms, they gave him money, they gave him a printing press, and it is from there he went back to Latin America to win the independence of the five states. So they took a tremendous part in the development of Latin America. Of Latin America, and then of course here we come to the United States. Because uh, the, the people, the people in the United States, refused to recognize Haiti until after 1865, because the southern slave owners were always looking upon that as somewhere where they could expand the territorial uh, development of cotton number one and number two. San Domingo and Haiti had given an example to the French, to the blacks in, in the United States, which they knew very well, and which the southern plantation owners were mightily afraid of. That was a tremendous role. You know, again, the contemporary aspects of your book, toward the latter part of it, the War of Independence, the last chapter, you speak of the pride of, in three years, people ask, how could this happen in three years? This, any part of your own, your own writing there. I'm yes. About the if in 1788 anyone had told the Comte de Lausanne, the minister, the Comte de Pénier, the governor, General Rochambeau, the soldier, Moreau de Saint-Méry, the historian, Barbé de Marbois, the bureaucrat, that the thousands of dumb brutes who were whipped to labor at dawn and whipped back at midnight, who submitted to their mutilations, burnings, and other savageries, some of whom would not even move unless they were whipped, if these fine gentlemen had been told that in three years the blacks would shake off their chains and face extermination rather than put them on again, they would have thought the speaker mad. While if today one were to suggest to any white colonial potentate that among those blacks whom they rule are men so infinitely their superior in ability, energy, range of vision, and tenacity of purpose that in a hundred years' time these whites would be remembered only because of their contact with the blacks, one would get some idea of what the counts, marquises, and other colonial magnates of the day thought of Jean-Francois, Toussaint, and Rigaud when the revolt first began. Thus again, we come to the question of awareness and the lack of awareness on the other side of what yes. is happening, of what is about to happen. Yes, the book again has this prophetic quality. It's 1938, first written. And, and many of these things are, are written okay. in 1938. I didn't write them in. I made one or two changes but, and introduced one or two new points. But essentially, 98% of the book is as it was. Now, I would like, if you don't mind, to read this. This is one of my favorite passages in the, in the book. Yes. And you must remember that this was written in 1938. He had sent millions of francs to America to wait for the day when he would be ready to invade Africa, put an end to the slave trade, and make millions of blacks free and French, as the French Revolution had made the blacks of San Domingo. The great revolution had propelled him out of his humble joys and obscure destiny, and the trumpets of its heroic period rang ever in his ears. In him, born a slave and the leader of slaves, the concrete realization of liberty 
equality and fraternity was the womb of ideas and the springs of power which overflowed their narrow environment and embraced the whole of the world. But for the revolution, this extraordinary man and his band of gifted associates would have lived their lives as slaves, serving the commonplace creatures who owned them, standing barefooted and in rags to watch inflated little governors and mediocre officials from Europe pass by as many a talented African stands in Africa today. I wrote that in 1938, and today I'm very proud of it because I knew what was taking place. They were standing there in rags and having to wave when these fellows passed. And they only needed a few years for them to be driving past in charge, whatever they did. And these fellows became nothing. It is amazing, your passage, that as well as your book, Professor James, the fact that you describe this and toward the end of it you you speak of a, a letter from a Rhodesian black yes. that speaks of this particular aspect of it. You're writing, of course, the style, uh, the power, but also the truth, that in this one man, then you saw the development of a people, too. Yes. And you spoke of uh, the West Indians earlier, earlier, and, of course, the great poet, Amy Césaire, whom, whom you know. Yes, I know Césaire, and he's a man I admire very much. And in the course of this appendix, in which I deal with the history of the West Indies from to Saint Louverture, to Fidel Castro, I refer to Césaire's great poem, Cahier d'un retour au pays natal, statement of a return to the country where I was born. And I've translated some of it, because it is in this poem that is first stated the poetic conception of negritude. He says, my negritude is not a stone, it's deafness a sounding board for the noises of the day. My negritude is not a mere spot of dead water on the dead eye of the earth. My negritude is no tower, no cathedral. It cleaves into the red flesh of the teeming earth. It cleaves into the glowing flesh of the heavens. It penetrates the seamless bondage of my unbending patience. And then he makes a tremendous statement on behalf of African civilization. Hurrah for those who never invented anything, for those who never explored anything, for those who never mastered anything, but who possessed, give themselves up to the essence of each thing, ignorant of the coverings, but possessed by the pulse of things, indifferent to mastering, but taking the chances of the world. And then he launches an attack on white civilization in 1938, the same year I wrote this book, and today with all these missiles above, he says, listen to the white world. It's horrible exhaustion from its immense labors. It's rebellious joints cracking under the pitiless stars. It's blue steel rigidities cutting through the mysteries of the flesh. Listen to their vain glorious conquests, trumpeting their defeats. Listen to the grandiose alibis of their pitiful floundering. But he says, I must not be hate. I must not have hate. Research for it is not true that the work of man is finished, that man has nothing more to do in the world but be a parasite in the world, that all we now need is to keep in step with the world. But the work of man is only just beginning, and it remains to man to conquer all the violence entrenched in the recesses of his passion. And no race possesses the monopoly of beauty, of intelligence, of force, and there is a place for all at the rendezvous of victory. It is a magnificent yes. poem. Oh, yes. Uh, this is the finest poem ever written on Africa. You know, as... as uh, He's a West Indian, too, I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> Professor C.L.R. James, as you just read these excerpts from 
the Cesar poem, I couldn't help but think of the power, the humanity of it, and of course of your book and your scholarship. Uh, the book, by the way, for listeners who will be inquiring, it's vintage. It's a paperback vintage. It's, it's definitely available. It's a classic, and it's, uh, it should be read, it seems to me, by anyone who wants to know about the open window and what is going on in the world and what will continue. And perhaps just one as sort of a postscript, your own courses, the way you teach, man, all literature uses your base in speaking of liberation. And it's used in, in one of your courses, Origin of Western Civilization, uh, from the Bible of the Hebrews, Revolt of Colonial People, Exodus, Revolt of Women Against Second Class Citizenship, Esther. And you go on to speak of Greek, use Greek uh, classics. Yes. You go on I use the Greek classics because the basis of Western Civilization is the work of the Hebrews and of the Greeks. Everybody understands that. So in studying the race and the radicalism of race, I take examples of the radicalism of the Hebrews and the radicalism of the Greeks. I am happy to do the story of Moses because he was the first that we know of who led a suppressed people to freedom. So if you're talking about freedom and the release of a suppressed people, I begin with Moses. That is what we are rooted in, particularly in the United States and in the Caribbean. We are rooted in Western civilization. So we cannot ignore African civilization. We do the best we can to be in contact with it. What series of talks I deal with Mau I deal with uh, Nkrumah, etc., the emergence of Africa. But I say we have to be aware of where we have come from we cannot uh, deny the roots of Western civilization and the radicalism that we find in it, we absorb and take it to ourselves. So that I think we have a lot to learn because we both Western and African civilization, we of the black people in the Caribbean and in the United States, we touch civilization at two points. And in all my work, I try to be aware yes, of them. Indeed, as uh, also what Dr. Du Bois said, in Soul of Black Dr. Folk. Du Bois, Dr. Du Bois, he's one of yeah. the greatest men of the 20th century. I have been very hostile to people who talk about Dr. Du Bois as one of the great black leaders. And even black people say, well, he was one of our best. I say, by do that, by you doing, doing that, you denigrate him. He was one of the most distinguished citizens of the 20th century. Black, white, yellow, or anything. A remarkable man. Yes. So in Dr. James, we have the scholar, at the same time, not the academician, not the removed, detached, very much the advocate scholar. Yes, I'm the advocate, and wherever possible, I participate in the struggles of the people. I know, and my course is aimed at proving that without the conscious intervention, or even the unconscious intervention of the mass of the people, there can be no real progress towards liberation. The intellectual may express and make clear what is really taking place in the majority of the people. That is what my course is seeking to put, and that is what my book, The Black Jacobins, expresses both for France and for the colonies. And just as there are two cultures, just as you find the fusion of the two and the contribution of the black man to both, tremendous, so you all see knowledge, you all see activity from the scholar, but from the street as well, the book and the street, you see it going both ways. Together, and one expresses the other, and the, the work of the book is of no serious value unless it is supplemented and stimulated by the work of the street. That is the view I have. The Black Jacobins is the book, and it's my privilege indeed to have been here with Professor C.L.R. James, now visiting professor at Northwestern University. It's vintage. And thank you very much indeed. Much obliged to you, sir. Much obliged to you. This particular conversation took place on, uh, during Dr. James' last day 
in America. He's returning to his home in London. He'll be returning to America soon to lecture at Princeton, at, at Yale, and at uh, Columbia. We trust at Northwestern again, where he'd like to talk about the various literatures of history and liberation, Old Testament, New Testament, the Greeks. Uh, that was part of a series, too, at Northwestern. So we trust in the not-too-distant future once more, Dr. James will be our guest. The book is the Black Jacobin's paperback, vintage, the publishers. We thought perhaps some music that might be appropriate now in the time remaining. There are songs, slave songs and code songs sung in the islands, San Domingo then, and no doubt many of them found their way in, in America itself, in the States, in the pre-Civil War days. A voodoo American is such a song. It is code as uh, black spirituals are code. It's a funeral song, Bia Baluco, at the same time it speaks of freedom. And though it speaks of that body of water when the burden of life becomes too much for he, for the man who has died, uh, there's a deep body of water separating him from freedom. So, as we say, this could be the River Jordan. It also could be that uh, river separating slave from free state or slave state from Canada. And these are songs that are commonly found today on the Sea Islands off the coast of Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. It could be traced there, but I imagine could go back to uh, the Caribbeans as well. This one, Voodoo American. Welcome back. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. And that was a uh, classic historic uh, interview uh, between uh, Studs Terkel, uh, the legendary uh, radio broadcaster, and uh, C.L.R. James uh, in 1970 uh, during his visiting professorship at Northwestern University uh, outside of Chicago in the United States discussing his book, uh, The Black Jacobins, as well as other issues uh, relevant uh, to the time period in regard to Pan-Africanism, African liberation, the struggle of uh, the wretched of the earth, as Frantz Fanon once described. This is uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. I'm your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, August the 6th, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. We'll take a musical break, and we'll be back with more of our program for this week. Turn the beat around, turn the beat around 
I am your host, Abayomi Azikaway. We just heard the uh, music of Keith Hudson with the tune entitled Turn the Heater On. And, of course, uh, we're here uh, broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Today is Saturday, August 6, 2022. Right now we want to move into a report uh, on the fallout uh, from uh, United States uh, House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to uh, the Taiwan Island in defiance of the People's Republic of China. Let's listen to this report uh, from uh, several days ago. The Chinese Foreign Ministry has summoned U.S. Ambassador to China Nicholas Burns after U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi landed in the Taiwan region. Chinese uh, Vice Foreign Minister Shifeng called Pelosi's trip a willful act to violate China's red line and the China-U.S. joint communiques, the political foundation of bilateral ties. He also noted that the U.S. administration indulged rather than restrained Pelosi's trip. China has responded with multiple statements and live-fire drills around the island immediately after Pelosi landed in Taipei. What's the impact of uh, her sneaky visit to Taiwan on cross-strait relations? What's the rationale behind China's reaction before and after she landed? Welcome to this special edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin, coming to you from Beijing live. To discuss these questions and more, I'm pleased to be joined from Guangzhou, southern China, by Professor Chen Ding Ding with the School of International Studies at Jinnan University from Washington, D.C. by Peter Kuznick, History Professor and Director at the Nuclear Studies Institute of the American University and from Islamabad, Pakistan by Senator Mushahid Hussein, Chairman of Pakistan's Senate Defense Committee. Gentlemen, the warmest welcome to the show. So to highlight some of the reactions we are seeing this morning and since last night. Upon her landing in Taipei, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of China issued a statement which highlighted how serious the matter is in China's eyes. In Chinese, there were a series of five serious, um, the use of the word serious um, in five times in the first paragraph, for instance, it says this is a serious violation of the one China principle and the provisions of the three China-U.S. joint communiques. It has a severe impact on the political foundation of China-U.S. relations and seriously infringes upon China's sovereignty and territorial integrity. It gravely undermines peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait and sends a seriously wrong signal to the separatist forces for Taiwan independence. So let me go to Professor Chen here to talk about the uh, visit itself. Uh, According to the published itinerary of uh, Speaker Pelosi, she was leading a congressional delegation to Southeast Asian countries and regions, but it never confirmed that Taiwan was on the list of the itinerary and the trip was uh, never announced. We only knew for sure she was arriving uh, only after her plane started to head north after heading east last night. A lot of people were watching on their phone closely. So why did she literally sneak into the island against all odds? Well, uh, thank you, Lucian, for inviting me uh, to be here first. And I think you used the, the right word, uh, sneak, uh, very well. I think this is uh, her strategy uh, to downplay, uh, you know, the, the kind of a violation of uh, Chinese uh, one-China principle and our uh, sovereignty and integrity. And of course, this uh, uh, political trick uh, would never work. But from uh, her point of view, I think she understood perfectly uh, the seriousness of uh, her you know, sneaking into 
uh, Taiwan and uh, the, all these uh, political and uh, other consequences of this uh, sneaking, in, sneaking visit. So I think she tried to uh, downplay the uh, seriousness of this matter, but uh, I think it will not work because uh, the U.S. government also understood very clearly from the very beginning uh, how serious this could be uh, for U.S.-China relations, uh, for uh, regional uh, peace and stability. Uh, and now I think uh, maybe she's regretting uh, uh, this whole event and the behavior, but I think uh, it's a, a serious violation of uh, China. Uh, you, China right. I have been following you on the social media, and, and I've noticed you're one of the uh, minority, I would say, who insisted from the very beginning that she would make the trip. What made you insist on that? What made you so sure that she would eventually carry it out? Well, remember, uh, back in April, sometime in April, she already leaked to the press that she could uh, pay a visit to Taiwan back in April. But uh, somehow she got infected by COVID, and then she had to cancel the trip to Taiwan. So we know from uh, uh, this kind of uh, uh, you know practice before, it's not easy to arrange a kind of uh, you know uh, foreign visit or, or you know this kind of international trip, right? So it you know it had to be planned uh, well advanced uh, for several months. So for example, and also uh, you know we back in April we already uh, you know made an assessment that uh, the uh, this uh, midterm election coming in November the Democrats would lose the. Uh, at the House, and she will no longer be the Speaker uh, you know, next January when, when the, uh, the next Congress convenes. So she had, uh, if she wanted to go, she had a very limited time uh, windows, so to speak, to, to go. So uh, April uh, not possible. Then you know, back in uh, you know, sub, uh, you know, in September, there will be a very busy time for the Congress again for many bills. So if she had to go, you know, the only possible uh, open window is uh, in the summer. Mm. So I think, you know, and because of all other factors, her personal uh, political uh, considerations, and uh, most importantly, uh, we, we have to consider this in a very broader uh, context, which is the U.S. government as a whole. By the way, Nancy Pelosi is part of the U.S. government. We normally talk about the uh, executive branch, but she is part of the uh, right. uh, legislation branch of the U.S. government. So it represents the U.S. government, uh, you know, mind and thinking. So I think uh, the broader context is in the, in the last few years, the U.S. has uh, knowingly uh, tried to, uh, you know, elevate the so-called Taiwan status, trying to support Taiwan mm. by providing weapons, okay. by providing all sorts of help. Right. So this is uh, inevitable. Let me get to my guest in America, Peter. How do you look at the sheer amount of work that they have put in? I mean, the delegation has put in, of course, with the backing of the U.S. military to keep her safe um, on this trip that has been apparently against the advice of the military or, um, you know, not supported by the president. We don't know any vocal support, but definitely he didn't stand out. Mr. Biden didn't stand out and speak against it. So why such so much ado for exactly what? Well, the point you're making, I think, is correct, that most American leaders see this as a dangerous provocation and a reckless 
act on her part. Congress has been very quiet in the United States when it comes to foreign policy. They've been willing to open the floodgates of funding, whether it's for any of the wars the U.S. gets involved in or the wars the U.S. supports, but Congress has not been actively involved in policymaking when it comes to foreign policy. So the fact that she would assert herself this way at this time, in a way that seems to go against U.S. interests, really, uh, United States has been putting pressure on China not to give military aid to Russia and Ukraine. The United States needs China's goodwill in terms of climate change, in terms of policy, but U.S. policy toward China in recent years has been pretty hostile. And when it comes to Taiwan, this began really under Trump, and people thought that maybe Biden would step back and, and approach it a little more peacefully, but Biden didn't. He doubled down on what Trump was doing in terms of trade war, in terms of inviting the top Taiwanese delegate in the diplomat in the United States to the inauguration, in terms of increased military aid, high-level visits. And so uh, this, this was a crisis that we saw coming, one that was totally avoidable. And the danger is that nobody appreciates and recognizes each other's red lines right now. This was a red line for China, much as, as Ukraine joining NATO was a red line for Russia. But we don't respect each other's red lines, which is why this has become so dangerous. I want to just mention the statement made by Antonio Guterres, mm -hmm. the uh, UN Secretary General yesterday, and he spoke at the, uh, at the UN, the NPT Review Conference. Right. He said, humanity is just one misunderstanding one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. And this is exactly the kind of provocation that can create, through miscalculation or deliberate action, the kind of dangerous scenario that could create this kind of catastrophe. Yeah. So it's an essential that we that cooler heads prevail mm -hmm. and that we don't escalate this any further. Yeah. Um Mr. Hussein, Senator Hussein, I want to get your perspective uh, looking from a third party, uh, from the, the way how the trip was organized, how, how her, you know, she was taking U.S. Uh, Air Force plane, she was escorted by you know, U.S. military forces, she, the kind of uh, military resources put in, and the kind of messages coming out of her meeting already, and the kind of messages she was sending by visiting, for instance, the legislative branch on the island. Is this trip in any sense unofficial to you, as is claimed by the United States? Well, uh, despite uh, ostensible opposition by the Biden administration and their reservations, I think there's no doubt that there's a segment in Washington, D.C., which is very hawkish and which is keen to spawn a new Cold War. And uh, I may add, just less than a year after the U.S. military defeat in Afghanistan last August, they are stoking up tensions in Asia. And I agree with the other uh, colleagues on the panel that it is a deliberate, unwarranted, and unnecessary provocation. Uh, it's crossed a red line, and it's adding to the anti-China hysteria that we find in certain sections of the West. And I think for Pelosi herself, probably it's the last hurrah 
because she's on the way out uh, most likely in November. And I think uh, domestic politics is one aspect. And then there's a broader context of geopolitics. As an Asian country, Pakistan is in West Asia, but we see the talk of Indo-Pacific strategy. We talk of an Asian NATO, Quad, AUKUS. And if you connect the dots, uh, we are looking at uh, uh, the U.S. administration, or shall we say the U.S. military-industrial complex, looking for a new enemy in China or trying to conjure up a so-called China threat, and uh, they are trying to destabilize Asia by this visit, uh, which I think was totally uncalled for and unwarranted. And it doesn't serve American interests, neither the interests of peace, security, and stability in Asia. There were some Taiwanese residents uh, who protested in front of the hotel that uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, was staying, and I talked to one of them, which is a doctor, who is Dr. Huang Zhixian, a senior Taiwan television commentator. Let's hear what she had to say this morning. Pelosi is not qualified to come. It's as simple as that. Taiwan belongs to China. China did not give you permission to come, but you came anyway. That's trespassing and setting foot in my house. This is the biggest insult, humiliation, and disrespect. Pelosi didn't say she supports Taiwan independence, but her actions convey that. The supporters of Taiwan independence are the enemies of China and Chinese people. So very, very strong uh, emotions there. And of course, a lot of uh, people here on the mainland share exactly that kind of sentiment. Uh, Professor Chen, how do you see her trip impacting China-U.S. ties? Do you think there will be a lasting uh, negative impact on bilateral ties because of this incident? Well, I'm, <clears throat> I'm increasingly uh, afraid of uh, such behavior. Uh, the impact you are talking about, I think, uh, given the uh, global situation, given the past uh, four or three years, U.S. government uh, increasing support for Taiwan uh, under all sorts of uh, excuses. So I'm afraid that that's uh, going to be a, a sort of long-term uh, trend. That means uh, I'm afraid the U.S. government will continue to, uh, you know, to increase support uh, to, to Taiwan and therefore to uh, to undermine uh, the cross-strait relations and also to undermine U.S.-China relations and the regional stability. I think you know, uh, Professor Peter just mentioned the Biden government just doubled down on the previous you know, Trump administration's uh, uh, policy. So I think this is not good news. This will uh, only lead to uh, more frictions and the confrontations uh, in, in the region. I think the uh, cooler heads, I hope, will eventually mm -hmm. uh, reassess the right. impact of this uh, so, uh, minimalist you know, chip. Right. There were a lot of call for military action here on the Chinese mainland. Uh, the Chinese people, a lot of people were very angry with this open provocation. But China's reaction, let's give people a, a brief idea. For instance, shortly before Pelosi landed, China's uh, Su-35 fighter jets crossed the Taiwan Strait, and Chinese People's Liberation Army also started a series of drills in the air and water surrounding Taiwan immediately after she 
she landed. This, of course, come after already several uh, military exercises were taking place before she went on the trip as a kind of deterrence. So, Professor Chen, how do you look at China's official reaction so far on the military side? Um, how moderate, how responsible, how appropriate in your eyes? And what could possibly be the rationale behind China's reactions? Well, first, I think it's a very appropriate uh, for Chinese uh, military to uh, initiate such actions. Uh, again, because uh, a close visit is a very serious violation of our one China principle and uh, will lead to regional uh, instability and, and other problems. So our military has to uh, respond in a very uh, resonant way to demonstrate our uh, capability and our willingness uh, to maintain the peace and the prosperity in this region. So I think uh, this message is very clear, but we only hope the U.S. government and uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi herself would uh, uh, hear this message uh, well and hope uh, they would uh, reassess the situation and come back to a more uh, moderate uh, approach uh, mm -hmm. toward this issue, and that would uh, uh, lower the instability level of the uh, cross-strait mm -hmm. situation and yeah. eventually U.S.-China relationship. Peter, how do you read into the reactions China has sent? Of course, very strong, very strong wording before the trip was made, but it seems that China didn't go all out in, you know, uh, trying to escort the plane or not prevent her from landing in Taipei or anything too dramatic, but rather took uh, a toned-down approach. How do you look at that, and how is that message being perceived in the United States? It's, it's clear that we knew before this how angry China was about this. We knew beforehand how seriously China took this, uh, this situation. Uh, but we also know that the Chinese leaders do not want a military confrontation. They don't want to escalate this to the point where there's going to be a military confrontation. So they're sending a very strong signal. They're, they're responding militarily with these live fire drills. They're responding economically, uh, sanctions against imports from Taiwan. They're responding with cyber attacks on Taiwan. So it's a strong response, but it's a limited response. And as Professor Chen says, those of us of goodwill would like to see this calm down and see our governments working together again to solve the real problems that we all face. But this kind of unnecessary provocation could worsen the situation. There are many who believe, and many of my friends in China who believe, that this is a watershed moment and that we're not going to be able to turn back from this. I don't accept that. It's not necessarily the case. But that danger is very, very real right now. Mm. Um, Senator Hussein, how do you look at China's reactions the mil on the military side? Do you think such reactions are just the right amount to send a strong message, uh, but not possibly escalating tension or even step into result in any miscalculation uh, or mili military confrontation between any sides? I would say that China's response has been measured, it has been matured, and it is the right response because China has not fallen into the American trap. They want to paint China as the aggressor, as the assertive, dominating power of Asia, 
as even almost sort of a warmonger, and China has not done that. And I think that is the right response. Uh, they have said you have crossed a red line, they have condemned that, they have taken the necessary measures, but uh, short of provoking a crisis. And it should not be a tit-for-tat response to the warmongering or the provocation from the American side. And I think given the context, uh, Asian countries would appreciate that response because they don't want uh, new tensions and new conflicts of confrontation in a region which is already seeing a lot of uh, hysteria about China, about the new Cold War. So it's the right response at the right time. But some Chinese people are actually not satisfied, let's say, with the level of uh, strength shown in such responses. Professor Chen, I'm, I'm sure you are aware of such voices. Even among some experts, they were uh, advocating for a stronger approach so that China can deter future attempts to make such visits either by U.S. officials, U.S. congressmen, or future U.S. House speakers, or speakers or congresspeople from other continents, from other Western countries. How uh, do you look at the kind of dilemma on the Chinese side? On the one hand, it does not want to escalate tension, but on the, on the other hand, it wants to send a message strong enough to deter future possible uh, such visits. Well, that's a very good question. I think, uh, number one, we needed to show our resolve, right? We needed to demonstrate that we have the capability and the willingness to uh, stop this kind of uh, provocation uh, and conflict in, in the future. I think, uh, to some degree, that's working. But we also needed to look at this from a long-term view. So it's not like a one-time exercise. It's not like a one-night uh, military drill. We should look at this from uh, you know several years uh, uh, term you know perspective. We understand that this is a process and how we try to uh, lower the temperature uh, in the cross situation. How we try to stabilize uh, the region and how we try to uh, stabilize U.S.-China relations. We will take a multi-year effort to do this. So this military exercise or related measures is only. Uh, part of that uh, long-term multi-year process uh, magic. So uh, as long as we understand this, I think uh, we will not be disappointed by the you know, seemingly uh, uh, non, uh, maybe not strong enough measures. I think it's uh, very appropriate and it's uh, also reassuring our regional partners. You know, we don't want to make trouble. We just wanted to maintain peace and stability. So it's the, you know, the other side, you know, the politicians from the U.S., the irres irresponsible ones that are making this uh, provocations. So hmm. we, I think we are doing fine. Hmm. Peter, how do you foresee the kind of uh, perception of uh, China's reactions? Of course, there are people who say, look, China caved in. Uh, Nancy, you went for it and China uh, got the message in. They don't have the guts to react more strongly. Uh, but other people would say, okay, China reacted responsibly uh, and not escalate the conflict. How much do you think will fall into this latter category and really appreciate and get the message that China wants to send, that we don't want confrontation, we want a longer-term peace and you know, the right environment for cooperation between the China and the United States? I think China's response has been fairly measured and that most Americans will see it that way. You have to remember that there are some extreme hawks in the United States also. There are people on the right, some of the old Trump people, who are pushing for a much more aggressive U.S. policy. We've had visits to Taiwan by Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State, 
Mark Esper, the former Secretary of Defense, and they don't like the one China policy. They want to recognize Taiwan's independence. And there are also military people in the U.S. who think that this is the time for the military confrontation because the U.S. has about as strong an advantage now over China as it's going to have. China is increasing its nuclear arsenal, modernizing, more sophisticated, uh, and other military capabilities. So we had those people throughout the Cold War who felt that way toward the Soviet Union, and now there are China hawks in the United States who are much more dangerous. The people around Biden, he surrounded himself with 18 top advisors from the Center for New American Security. These people are China hawks, but not nearly as extreme as the China hawks in the Trump administration. So they're more realist. We can work together, and I think uh, that people on both sides need to be reaching out with diplomacy. The time for diplomacy, aggressive diplomacy. China's made its point. Everybody understands that. Now it's time to move diplomatically. Let's take a look at some international reactions before and uh, after uh, she landed in Taipei. Um, she visited Singapore, for instance, and uh, Singaporean Prime Minister Li Xianlong clearly highlighted the importance of stable U.S.-China relations for regional peace and security, and this is echoed uh, to many people surprised by Japanese Foreign Minister and the spokesperson of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Republic of Korea, who uh, sent the same message that they want a stable China-U.S. relation, they want stable regional peace and security. The United Nations also reiterated its support for the One China um, principle by mentioning the Resolution 2758 of 1971. So, uh, Senator Hussein, how do you look at these statements, these unanim unanimous concerted voices about how, how much people in the region don't want an unstable, unstable and, uh, you know, uh, stirred up tension in the Asia-Pacific? All these countries that you mentioned were given very responsible statements about uh, uh, China are also members of the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, in which the U.S. is not a member. So you can see the future of Asia, they feed lies in connectivity, cooperation, whether it's the Belt and Road Initiative of China or trade and investment, not in conflict and confrontation. And as I was just reading an op-ed also by uh, they are saying voices in the U.S. also. Tom Friedman wrote, it is utterly reckless for Pelosi to go there. And I was reading The Guardian, which is a major paper from London, and they were saying the biggest demonstration in Taipei was against Pelosi. And you mentioned the lady who spoke there, right. and there were placards of Yankee go home and that sort of thing. So the mood, the public opinion is going on the other side, and I think the Biden administration and the Hawks are on the wrong side of history. Uh, and I think that uh, this won't work out, even for U.S. interests. And the U.S. economy is in a shambles. They can't sustain a new Cold War. I think better sense should prevail, and that is the mood in Asia. And I hope it is resonating finally in Washington, D.C. as well. Hopefully. Yeah, and we're also hearing voices of U.S. allies, for instance, Australian Prime Minister um, said just a couple of days ago that the existing struggle, stru structure uh, in the region which are there clearly are in the interest of all parties and is against uh, the kind of uh, talks to hype up political uh, military tension. So what is, Mr. Professor Chen, what's 
been laid bare for the world to see through her provocative trip that even the, part, the U.S.'s partners, allies, stand up and uh, make these very clear and uh, undeniable messages. Yes, I agree. I think it's very clear from the uh, messages uh, just you know mentioned by you and uh, uh, Senator Hussein uh, earlier that all the original actors and even partners of the U.S. are disproving uh, this trip. It's, it's, so it's very important that you know all these regional countries and even U.S. allies do not want to see uh, unstable region. They want to see regional stability and the more stable U.S.-China relations. Uh, which is collective uh, desires right now. So I think it, right now, it's, uh, as uh, Professor Peter just mentioned, it's for time for U.S. politicians to recognize this collective will of uh, Asian Pacific countries uh, to stabilize U.S.-China relations, to stabilize the region. So I think this clear message from many, many countries is very, very important. It's not just China. It's not just uh, you know several countries. It's actually... Uh, most of the uh, countries in the world. All right. We have about 10 seconds. I'm going to go give to Peter. Uh, are we going to see worsening ties between the two sides? Is there anything to be positive on as we leave the program? 10 seconds, really. I think we're going to see worsening situation for a while, and then we'll step back from that. It's good that Biden and Xi Jinping did have a two-hour conversation okay. on the phone a few days ago. Mm -hmm. We need more diplomacy of that sort. We need to be talking to each other. Thank you so much to my three guests, uh, Professor Chen Dingding joining us from Jinan University, Peter Kuznick from the American University, and last but not least, uh, um, Senator Mushahid Hussein, Chairman of Pakistan Senate Defense Committee. Thank you very much for your great insights. Welcome back. And uh, that was a report and analysis of uh, the provocative trip uh, by United States uh, House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan just this last past week, uh, which has, in effect, uh, brought about a partial blockade uh, to Taiwan, as well as uh, sanctions leveled against not only uh, goods uh, that have been uh, flowing freely between uh, Taiwan and the mainland China, but also sanctions against uh, the people who were involved uh, in this uh, excursion uh, to Taiwan that was largely kept secret until uh, the U.S. military aircraft entered uh, Taiwanese airspace, a highly provocative action. And, of course, it fuels uh, the tension that exists um, not only in Eastern Europe in regard to the U.S. proxy war against the Russian Federation that has been going on since uh, late February, but also escalating tensions in the South and East China Seas. This is the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our conclusion to this week's program.
Motown sound uh, of the Marvelettes uh, from Inkster, a suburb outside of Detroit, Michigan. That song was entitled Danger, Heartbreak, Dead Ahead, Straight Ahead. And that's going to conclude uh, our program for today. Uh, We'll be signing off. We'll conclude uh, with uh, John Coltrane, Jupiter Variations. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.